0: The general, worldwide trend towards equality, inclusion, and multiculturalism collides with mindsets that have had enough change, frankly, and could we also please roll back the clock a ways. Add to this centuries of racism, and maybe even a little bit of misogyny, and you get things like the Great Replacement, an idea that white people are being phased out, probably on purpose, maybe by the Jews. Ha ha, you think. Until some people get weapons and then go on shooting sprees, as happened just last month in Buffalo, New York, with the gunman going on about the Great Replacement in his online manifesto. So, not so funny and harmless after all. Where did this idea come from and what is it? Well, that's what today's episode of Conspiracy Clearinghouse is all about. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast and if you like what we do, donate via our Buy Me a Coffee page. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Conspiracy Clearinghouse, the podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. Gay Gay Icon icon Turns turns White white Wing wing, 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 wing. Renaud Camus came of age in 1960s France, came out as gay, which got him removed from his conservative entrepreneur father's will, was active in the LGBT community in Paris in the late 60s, became a socialist, picked up a handful of degrees in philosophy, literature, political science, and history of the law, hung out with counterculture types in Paris in the late 70s, like Andy Warhol, and became something of a gay icon, writing a number of provocative works, including Tricks, which described numerous homosexual encounters around France. In 1992, he sold his Paris apartment for a tidy sum and bought a 14th-century castle in southern France. So far, so left-wing made good. Then in 1996, while editing a guidebook about a small department in the region he lived in, he had a sudden realization. Most of the demographics in the villages there had changed dramatically over the years. Basically, there were way more darker-skinned people living down in the south of France than there had been in previous decades. Of course, this makes more sense since more inclusivity in society results in at least some people of color getting a chance to become more upwardly mobile, Or perhaps, thought Camus, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's all part of a plot, a plan to slowly but inexorably replace white people with non-white people. And not just in France, Everywhere. everywhere. In 2002, he swung to the other side of the socio-political spectrum and formed a political party called the Party of No Harm, Parti de la Innocence, which focused on stopping all immigration into France and sending all current immigrants back to their countries of origin, which is a process known as remigration. Presumably, he meant just those residents with darker skin, since he didn't seem to be particularly bothered by, say, Danish immigrants or Germans. He developed his ideas into a series of writings, culminating in 2011 with The Great Replacement, a book in French that outlined what he thought was going on, a drop in birth rates across Europe, combined with mass immigration of people from the Middle East and Africa, especially places that had once been colonies of France, unsurprisingly, all happening because of a coordinated plan by, quote, replacist elites, whoever they are, and which amounted to, quote, genocide by substitution. At first, he focused mainly on Muslims, which is a religion, not a race, but okay, saying that they were consciously trying to dismantle French and European culture. In 2012, he officially launched his no-harm party, running for president of France, His platform included various remigration elements, plus a desire to abolish wind farms and all roadside advertising, changing automobile manufacturing so no car is able to go over the speed limit at all, and officially recognizing Israel, Palestine, and Lebanon as Christian lands. After poor showing in the initial stages of the electoral process, he threw his lot in with Marine Le Pen, who is not only a white nationalist, but also an actual, honest-to-God, fascist. She has gone on to utilize some of his great replacement rhetoric in her speeches. Oh, how the worm had turned, though he mainly seemed focused on race. Let's call him white wing instead of right wing. One has to wonder what exactly happened to him down there in southern France to make him suddenly loathe people of color. Some unrequited love? Who knows? But the great replacement notion was born, he says, and he found others who shared his concerns and continued to fight for the white. Despite his protestation that he hates Nazis, he took inspiration from the chant heard at the, let's face it, mainly white supremacist Unite the White Rally in North Carolina, back in 2017, you know the one that Trump said had, quote, very fine people on both sides. Those people were chanting, you will not replace us, and Jews will not replace us. He took inspiration from this chant for the title of the first book he wrote to be translated into English, the 2018 You Will Not Replace Us. Camus continues to espouse his racist ideas, despite getting his Twitter account suspended in October 2021, calling all non-whites occupiers, capital O, and colonizers, small c, claiming there are no terrorists per se, but that from time to time the occupiers just kill a few people, quote, to better remind us who the master is, us apparently meaning white people and the master apparently meaning these people of color. He also seems to want to co-opt techniques and rhetoric from anti-colonial movements that arose in places like Nigeria and Algeria, which once were French holdings, and he seems to see no contradictions here at all. In 2019, he ran for the European Parliament, along with a French politician of North African Berber descent with the slogan, We shall not leave Europe, we shall make Africa leave Europe. Maybe Europe should have left Africa alone in the first place instead of enslaving its people and stealing its resources. But that train, I'm afraid, has left the station. It may seem weird that an Algerian Berber would be on board with this stuff, but France is a country of seeming contradictions, especially in the academic, intellectual, and political spheres. One of the main supporters of the Great Replacement Idea is Alain Finkelkraut, a French-Jewish philosopher who says that Camus' term of, quote, genocide by substitution may be a little bit overblown, but he prefers to call it, quote, demographic substitution. And by the way, it's totally a real thing. Far-right political guy Eric Zemmour is another proponent and is also Jewish. And while plenty of people try to claim Camus is anti-Semitic, he says he is, in fact, very much against anti-Semitism. In fact, a couple of prominent far-right historians and political scientists have said that they think Great Replacement is a successful idea precisely because it does not include some nefarious Jewish plot, and that it fits in nicely with outdated ideas defining a nation solely by race. No, it would seem that Camus is referring to skin color alone and Muslims. He says just the fact that Islam is homophobic is enough to justify any anti-Muslim feelings one might have. Well, I mean, not entirely. After all, he apparently also dislikes cars that go too fast and wind farms. He's also said that he thinks democracy is a terrible system and we would all be better served by a system of elites, sort of a postmodern version of Plato's Republic. Them Heavy People in fact, a lot of the Great Replacement stuff sounds very much like other so-called quote, white genocide conspiracy theories, except that Camus simply replaces Jews with Muslims and occasionally Africans. As such, it slips neatly into a freak-out narrative that white-wing folks exploit to gain attention, influence, and power. Academic Andrew Fergus Wilson says that while Great Replacement is mainly Islamophobic, it does have a lot of crossover with other white supremacist idea bundles, most of which include anti-Jewish sentiment. This is especially true in the U.S., where many white supremacists think that immigrants are being brought into that country by Jews with the aim of slowly phasing out white Christians or Odinists or whatever. White people, in short. Great Replacement is easy to understand and easy to remember. And its influence is, well, colonizing, if you will, the public sphere, social media, and some people's minds. According to a December 2018 poll, a full quarter of French people believe at least some of the Great Replacement idea. When the sample is reduced to people who are also part of the Yellow Vest movement, that percentage jumps up to almost half, 46%. Another poll found 67% of French people say they are concerned about Great Replacement and the idea has jumped borders, sort of like an immigrant, I guess, especially since Camus' 2019 book. Fjordman... A far-right Norwegian, quote, counter-jihadist promotes it, as do various weirdo groups scattered around Europe, like the German-based group Pegida, or patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the Occident, whose founder has been photographed on a couple of occasions dressed as Adolf Hitler, groups in Austria, Belgium, Denmark, Hungary, Ireland, Italy, the Netherlands, Spain, and the UK and the identitarian movement, which is anti-globalization, anti-multiculturalism, anti-Islam, and anti-immigration, which also started in France and has also gone a-wandering throughout Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and North America. A study done in May this year, right after the mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, showed that almost a full one-third of U.S. adults also believe some part or another of great replacement. So does rabid racist Canadian Lauren Southern. Back in 2017, she supported stopping search and rescue operations in the Mediterranean for refugees attempting to cross into Europe from North Africa, a stance that got her demonetized by YouTube and booted off Patreon, PayPal, and GoFundMe. Despite claiming she is a conservative and not a racist or even far-right, she routinely predicts a brewing race war that's gonna break out now, well, any day. She also says transgender people are mentally ill and that women are, quote, not psychologically developed to hold leadership positions. Ironically, this kind of talk has put her in something of a leadership position, with some of her videos getting more than 600,000 views. She also supports Russian domination of Eurasia. She's been banned from entering the UK entirely, and while on tour not long ago in Australia, she casually mentioned to a Brisbane audience that they can't nuke the city of Melbourne yet because there are probably a few hundred good people still left there. Ha 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 ha. Funny. And strangely, while she credits her racial awakening to encountering Asian people in Canada when she was young who could not or would not speak English, which would completely enrage her absolutely not racist father, her husband is partly Asian, as is obviously their child. This makes you suspect that she doesn't actually believe any of it, and she is just using this as a tool to get notoriety. Plenty of politicians have found that this Great Replacement stuff is a good tool to rile up the electorate and maybe get themselves some of the power that they've been craving like chocolate cake since childhood. Austria's Heinz-Christian Strache for the Freedom Party endorsed Great Replacement Theory, as he calls it, before the 2019 European Parliament elections, and obviously France's Marine Le Pen has done the same. In 2017, Steve King, an American Republican congressman from Iowa, who's probably the most openly white nationalist guy in Congress, went to Twitter to publicly support Dutch anti-immigrant politician Geert Wilders, saying, quote, Wilders understands that culture and demographics are our destiny. We can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. He then doubled down in 2018 in an interview with an Austrian far-right magazine specifically endorsing Great Replacement Theory by name. When talking to the New York Times in 2019, he said, quote, "...white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization, how did that language become offensive?" Apparently, he knows nothing of the history of the last 400 years. But what about all the immigrants who were crappy but essential jobs in the country? If his dream of getting rid of all of them came true how could the country possibly go on economically? His solution was to mandate that everyone who was unemployed between the ages of 16 and 65 be conscripted into work and, quote, we could invent machines to do the rest. He also called for an electric fence along the U.S.-Mexican border since electric fences are so good at containing livestock. He said this could be funded easily by pulling monies from Planned Parenthood and food stamps. King has a special ire for those south of the U.S. border. Apparently, he noticed some Mexican people with particularly large calves, which he attributed to, quote, hauling 75 pounds of marijuana across the desert. If only that exercise plan really worked, right? We'd all be doing it. In 2018, while campaigning, he just plain called Mexicans, quote, dirt. Then he denied that he said it. Then when he was confronted with an audio recording of himself saying that they are dirt, he said people should be careful not to think that, quote, every culture is equal. Weirdly, he also sometimes claims that he himself is Hispanic and Latino, which he is not. His father is German-Irish and his mother is from Welsh stock. He also subscribes to white genocide theory, doesn't like Muslims, and also might be an anti-Semite. Basically, he's a racist piece of garbage who fortunately left office in 2021 after foaming at the mouth in the house for 18 years. And then we have the actual attacks. The gunman in the Tree of Life synagogue attack in Pittsburgh in October 2018 that took 11 lives said he thought Jews were bringing non-whites into the U.S. for the purpose of marginalizing and eventually eliminating white people. The guy who live-streamed as he killed 51 people and wounded 49 more at the Al Noor Mosque in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019 actually titled his online manifesto, The Great Replacement. A month after that, another shooter at a synagogue in Poway, California, said Jews were responsible for the genocide of white Europeans. Four months later, the perpetrator of the Walmart shooting in El Paso, Texas, said that he supported the Christchurch shooter and was going on his shooting spree because of a Hispanic invasion that was part of a, quote, cultural and ethnic replacement. He killed 23 and wounded another 23. And then, in May this year, the self-proclaimed fascist, anti-Semite, and white supremacist shooter in Buffalo, New York, who killed 10 and injured three, specifically referenced the Great Replacement in his 180-page online manifesto, though his targets seemed to be black people, you know, who were born in the U.S. because their ancestors had been kidnapped from their homelands and forced into slavery. But, you know, splitting hairs, right? I mean, thinking Thinking is is hard. Though Camus says he deplores violent actions such as these, he also still continues to use language like that whites need to have a counter-coup against the replacement and that white genocide is the ultimate goal of all immigration. Coup, revolution, insurrection, genocide, these are loaded words. Many great replacementers use terms like population replacement or population exchange, which is the wrong use of the word exchange, but hey, words Words are hard. are hard. hard all of which sound eerily like the Nazi idea of um umvokung, which means ethnicity inversion. The January 6, 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol was very much a white supremacist event, with many participants citing fears that, as demographics change, blacks and Latinos will get more rights than white people. Some sociologists think this might be a type of widespread psychological projection on the part of white people. After all, whites of European descent colonized other lands, subjected those inhabitants to enslavement, servitude, and essentially feudal systems plundered resources, stole wealth, forcibly converted the populations to their religion, and then, in later years, when it was all mostly done with, continued to treat non-white people as second- or third-class citizens, limiting their chances of success in the systems that they, the whites, created. So, goes the subconscious fear, when white people drop below 50% of the population, obviously, all these other ethnicities who we've treated so badly over the centuries are going to band together and stick it to whitey like Whitey, has been sticking it to them. Which, of course, is ridiculous. We still have laws against violence, and in places where whites have dropped below 50%, there has not been some kind of mass uprising of aggrieved people of color. In the U.S., six states have been less than 50% white for quite some time. Maryland, Nevada, Texas, New Mexico, California, which is only 36% white, Hawaii, for obvious reasons, and Puerto Rico, for also obvious reasons, and, of course, the District of Columbia, which is the only place in the entire country where black people are the largest group, at 45%. Where are all the armed uprisings and race wars in those places? Oh, that's right, there haven't been any. Well, what are these people of color waiting for? My God, the U.S. managed to get the entire interstate highway system completed in just 36 years, and that was through eight different administrations, both Democrat and Republican. I would hazard to say that if this is really the big secret plan, it's not going very well. But none of this so-called information stops true believers from running off at the mouth like broken toilet plumbing like human-shaped ballcock Tucker Carlson. Incidentally, a ballcock is the part of a toilet system that refills the tank once the level has dropped. He's been yammering on about this idea for years, calling it simply replacement theory and also demographic change and the not-so-succinct but nonetheless-quite-clear term, quote, replacing the population. For him, it's all the Democrats who want to replace what he calls legacy Americans with immigrants who will vote their way, who will be, quote, obedient voters, as if people of color have no brains of their own. According to the Anti-Defamation League, he has talked about this in 400 episodes of his show, plus an additional 200 in which he mentions that white people don't seem to be having very many babies these days, and he's talked about discrimination against white people in another 600 episodes, really ramping that rhetoric up in 2020, you know, the year everybody stayed home. The New York Times counted up the minutes and seconds Balcock Carlson has spent talking about replacement theory and found that it totals more than 50 hours between 2017 and the end of 2021 if you spliced it all together. He has made himself the poster boy for white grievance and more specifically, cis, straight, white male victimhood. And he knows what he is doing. This is a stance that he takes in order to build and retain his audience share by playing on a certain segment of the population's fears and ignorance. He doesn't really believe any of this stuff, but he knows that some of the people who listen to him do. But does it really matter that he doesn't actually believe any of the toilet water he is filling up the tank of discourse with? The New York Times says, no, it doesn't really matter. He's using the same language and dog whistles that white supremacists use, sometimes paraphrasing them or even quoting them directly, so making some sort of distinction about his motives and beliefs is kind of irrelevant. If it walks like a white nationalist and talks like a white nationalist, who cares if it really is or isn't? Walcott Carlson, of course, knows all this, so he has even taken the extreme step of questioning whether white nationalism even exists at all. He has called white supremacy a hoax, that there have been many, many studies conducted to try and find out just what white supremacy is and failed to do so, when actually all you have to do is look in a dictionary, and he has claimed that he doesn't even understand the idea of white power. At any rate, after the Buffalo mass shooting in May this year, Balcock and Fox have all gone kind of quiet on the whole replacement theory thing. Funny, Funny. that. But they're they're scary! scary. White people have been scaring themselves with boogeyman stories about non-whites for ages. In the 19th century, it was the Yellow Peril, which arose somewhere around 1870 in Imperial Germany, spread to Russia, enabled the head tax in 1880s Canada, in which every Chinese person entering the country had to pay a fee or leave, and found fertile ground in the U.S., where Chinese immigrants had been building the transcontinental railroad and were already viewed with distaste and suspicion. And when Asians tried to throw off the European colonial yoke in their own lands, like during the two year long boxer rebellion that started in 1899, these stereotypes were used as propaganda, further working their way into the Western mindset. Of course, anti-Semitism has been around since, well, since the founding of the Christian faith, pretty much. Unlike other so-called races, who are generally seen as inferior and less intelligent than whites, Jews seem to be seen as especially wily. This view was greatly reinforced by the famous forgery, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which supposedly showed a plot by Jews to dominate the world. And we'll talk about that document in a future episode in detail. Though the idea of a large-scale Jewish plot actually comes from the book Jewish France by French rabid anti-Semite Edouard Drummond in 1886. At 1,200 pages, it's quite a screed and was a massive bestseller at the time, going through 140 separate printings. He writes, there is a fundamental conflict between the Jews, who he calls the Semites, and the non-Jews, who he calls the Aryans. Naturally, all finance and mechanisms of capitalism are controlled by the Semites, and also they killed Jesus. Actually, it was the Romans who killed Jesus, but never mind, I guess. Some modern commentators trace a direct line from this book to Renaud Camus' Great Replacement, except that Camus simply subs in the word Muslims for Jews. But otherwise, everything's pretty much the same. Another Frenchman, journalist and politician Maurice Barret, wrote a lot about what he saw as a plot to replace white people in France with non-whites, and especially Jews, through immigration and their higher birth rates. Of course, you have to ask, where are all the blacks, Latinos, Asian, Native Americans, and, and other people of color in this eternal struggle between Aryans and Semites? Perhaps they're just not worthy of consideration. You will note that this whole idea of a cabal of secret Jewish masters or Democrats or whatever manipulating darker-skinned people for their own gain continues to disenfranchise those other races, who in this narrative are just mindless pawns, almost like livestock to be used by one side or the other. And then along came eugenics, a term that comes from Greek roots, meaning good-growing, but was actually a pseudoscience of selective breeding to enhance certain physical characteristics first developed in the modern era by Sir Francis Galton in Victorian England. Galton had read Darwin's groundbreaking new theory of evolution and took it to places that Mr. Darwin himself disagreed with. There was also a strand of genetic determinism in this new, quote, science of eugenics. And it was galton who coined the term eugenics which is that certain mental attributes and even personality traits are predetermined by genes this is really just a more modern slightly more scientific gloss on Carl Linnaeus's categories from the late 1700s, which we'll talk about in a future episode about race. Eugenics really took off in white-majority countries in the early 20th century, and yeah, obviously it was a main component of Nazi Germany's ideas. Adolf Hitler wrote a thank-you letter to American Madison Grant for writing the 1916 book The Passing of the Great Race, which went on about how the Nordic races were superior to all others and why eugenics is necessary for their survival. Hitler called Grant's book his Bible. Once World War II was over, these ideas didn't die out. Many neo-Nazi groups sprang up, again in a future episode we'll trace some of them, and also became a component in Cold War politics in European colonies. The term white genocide first shows up in the American Nazi Party's periodical White Power sometime in the early 70s to be revived by alt writers around 2008, especially the white nationalist internet site Stormfront. In addition to Jews being the primary enemy of these pure Aryans, all, quote, liberal political ideas are as well, this according to David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. So ideas themselves can also be part of the struggle. This whole idea of Aryans has now been pretty much discarded by serious scholars and scientists, The myth goes that the Aryans were a highly advanced group of people who spoke what's known as Proto-Indo-European and were light-skinned, blonde, and had blue eyes, even though they came out of India. And then they went on to settle Northern Europe. During a massive immigration from Europe to the United States, in 1900, American eugenicist, sociologist, and criminologist Edward Ellsworth Ross looked at the differing birth rates between American-born Protestants and immigrant Catholics, with the bonus idea that the native Protestants are desirable and the incoming Catholics are physically and mentally defective and these icky newcomers would eventually drive first-rate, locally-born Protestants to extinction. He termed this race suicide, even though he's talking about two different versions of Christianity. Sounds like a stupid idea, right? Not worth the time of day, but President Teddy Roosevelt was an adherent of the race suicide idea, saying it was the most important issue in the country at that time. He also said that it was native-born Protestants' duty to marry and reproduce to prevent it and that men who did not want to marry were essentially criminals against their own race, meaning Protestants born in the United States. In 1920, another American journalist and conspiracy guy, Lothrop Stoddard, wrote a book titled The Rising Tide of Color Against White World Supremacy. He argued that people of color were getting a bit too much power, even in their own lands, and that they should be kept from American shores so as to prevent the mixing of races. If steps like this were not taken, said he and his followers, all humanity would eventually become some weird new mixed race in the future due to miscegenation, which is the mixing of races. A term first used in a pamphlet published anonymously in New York City in 1863, right in the middle of the U.S. Civil War, called miscegenation, the theory of the blending of the races applied to the American white man and Negro. That work claimed that this blending of races was the secret goal of the Republican Party. We now know that that pamphlet was written by two Democrats to discredit Abraham Lincoln's party. But back to the 1920 book by Stoddard, he followed that success with another book called The Revolt Against Civilization, The Menace of the Underman, which was translated into German, giving that language the translated word Untermensch, which would become a foundational propaganda term for the fledgling Nazi movement. The The secret secret life life of of Arabia. Arabia. That's a reference to a David Bowie song. In 2001, after the terrorist attacks in New York and Washington, a sort of mindset started coalescing like grease in a blocked kitchen sink that the religion of Islam is a direct threat to Western civilization. Many who thought this way started to use a term to describe this suite of ideas and prejudices, which was the Counter-Jihad Movement, abbreviated to CJM. It actually kind of first showed up in the 1980s, but it was only in the wholesale post-9-11 freakout that this stuff got any real serious traction. The idea was, no, people like Osama bin Laden are not just fringe extremists, they are actually interpreting the text of the Quran correctly because that book, The Bedrock of Islam, is an inherently violent work. There are no radical Muslims or moderate Muslims. All Muslims are the same. It's just that the so-called radical ones no longer try and hide their true intentions, while the supposedly peaceful ones are playing a long con, lulling us into a false sense of safety and security before they reveal their true colors and strike. Or it could be that these Muslims who say their religion is actually one of peace simply do not understand their own foundational holy text. But we white Christian Westerners can help them out by showing them what their book really means. It means war, domination, and the complete takeover of the entire world. Like Nazis, but with God as the Fuhrer. This is a stance that is insulting on many, many levels. Arrogant, childishly simplistic, smacking of cultural imperialism, and really, when you take a close look at it, it's simply a rebranding of anti-Semitic tropes that made so much of the 19th and 20th century such a joy for Jewish people throughout Europe. The main thrust goes something like this. The Christian and Muslim world have been in conflict since they first encountered each other. Modern liberals and humanists, in pursuit of their goals of creating multicultural societies, which is really just Marxism rebranded, have become traitors to their own countries. And this has opened the door for Muslims plenty to flood into Christian lands and attack from within a fifth column of sleeper agents who pray five times a day. Christians must resist all this by essentially going back to a crusader mindset. And because this is a fight not just for supremacy but for survival, there is no good and evil when combating the foe. There is only victory and life or failure and extermination. Well, things don't get much more black and white than that. The thing is, of course, that Islam, like Christianity, is a religion, not a race. But this focus on Middle Eastern countries in the counter-jihad movement shows it up for what it really is. It's not about religion. It's a racist ideology clothed in pseudo-political language. In 2005, Egyptian-born writer Gisela Litman, maiden name Orebi, published a book titled Eurabia, the Euro-Arab Axis, though she wrote it under her pen name Bat Yaor. This book said that Europe has essentially already surrendered to Islam and was now subservient to the Arab world, forced to deny their own culture, accept Muslim immigrants who would slowly change the very nature of European culture, and pay tribute to Arab nations under the guise of supposed economic assistance. She termed this state of affairs dimitude, a word she made up, that combines the Arabic word demi, which means non-Muslims, and the French and English word servitude. Her term for this colonized Europe was Eurabia, Now, that term had actually first shown up in the 1970s, taken from a newsletter published by the European Coordinating Committee of Friendship Societies for the Arab Nations. But she intended this in a whole new way, a much more sinister way, sort of a latter-day take on 1930s and 40s British fascist PM wannabe Oswald Mosley's ideas of your Africa. But she is credited with popularizing the word and certainly the conspiracy theory of Arabia, for that is, in fact, what it basically amounts to. Many far righties have since taken up this catchy Arabia term, notably Melanie Phillips in her 2006 book, London Stand How Britain is Creating a Terror State Within, American born but Norway resident Bruce Barr's 2007 book, While Europe Slept How Radical Islam is Destroying the West from Within, and Norwegian counter jihadist blogger Fjordman, whose real name is Pedro Are Nostvod Jensen, self-published 2008 work, Defeating Eurabia, and many, many others. They all raise the alarm call trying to rouse the sleeping sheeple, calling for various actions to try and defeat this pernicious and insidious enemy, saying that progressive ideas of tolerance are actually helping the enemy, and so the only real way to combat them is not just with intolerance, but absolute rejection at every single level. Fjordmon Jensen goes so far as to call for the total physical removal of all Muslims and anything deemed to be associated even slightly with Islam from the Western world. How exactly you would go about that, I don't know. Now, almost all Arabia people say they would stop just short of committing acts of violence, but some people who are listening to them don't agree. Norwegian terrorist Anders Breivik, who killed 77 people and injured 319 more, mainly children, in Norway's worst terrorist attack in 2011, was a big proponent of the Arabia concept, featuring it in his writings. Again, the Arabia concept is very much focused on demographic changes due to immigration and differing birth rates, and the idea of a covert Islamic well, not Reconquista, so let's just call it maybe Conquista, has followers all over Europe and North America, especially in the U.S., where Fox News host John Gibson has referenced it, as has Rick Santorum. And Steve Bannon claimed in 2007 that the National Security Council was actively involved in helping Muslims establish a new country in North America, which would be known as the Islamic States of America. It's from the Arabia gang that you see all sorts of patently false posts on social media about how the Netherlands, or parts of Sweden, or some neighborhoods in Paris, or whatever are now officially under Sharia law. Alcohol is banned, women are being covered up, and Christians are being rounded up and persecuted. I actually encountered one such post on Facebook while on holiday in Stockholm at a pub in the very neighborhood the poster claimed was under Sharia law and a quasi-military dictatorship. I commented that actually I was sitting right there and out the window, I could see no such thing. Plus, I was having a beer. His response, no, you aren't, you're lying. I just chuckled and ordered another beer. Your body, my choice. So we can plainly see there are plenty of antecedents to the great replacement idea, despite Camus's claim that it came to him as a revelation while he brooded in his Southern French castle. Yet, Big Wheel keeps on turning and these ideas just seem to have a higher birth rate than more rational ones with more spawning off all the time. It's all obviously nonsense, especially since the whole idea of race itself is a human construct, and if it weren't for people like Breivik and the shooter in Buffalo early this year, it would almost be funny. Dress it up however you like, but this really is just the same old story that's been around since white people first came across non-white people. It's just science-laden lipstick on a good old-fashioned racist pig. Except there may be another wrinkle to look at here. All this focus on reproduction is, in some ways, about more than just race. It's about women's bodies. The Anti-Defamation League has an interesting blog post called Misogyny as a Powerful Undercurrent of the Great Replacement Conspiracy Theory. The essay points out that one of the self-imposed duties of the Ku Klux Klan was the protection of, quote, pure womanhood, and that often the excuse for lynching a black man was that he had transgressed with a white woman. In many U.S. states and in some countries, it has been frowned upon for people of different races to marry or even have a relationship. The 1910 Man Act, which was supposed to be about stopping so-called white slavery, had been used many, many times to stop black men from crossing a state line with a white woman in his company, making that a federal crime because... After all, he must be doing it in order to have sex with her, and she can't possibly want to be having sex with him because she's white and he's black, so therefore he's a trafficker and a rapist and we can get him. Boxer Jack Johnson essentially was ruined by racial interpretations of the 1910 Man Act. In slaveholding Virginia and Maryland, a white woman who married a slave or gave birth to a mixed-race baby was sentenced to five years indentured servitude and then exiled from her community because she had now become, quote, defiled. Men, of course, were permitted to rape female slaves as often as they liked with no legal repercussions because slaves were not legal people. So in this whole idea of people of color replacing white people, the battleground really is women's bodies, especially their wombs. Promoters say that women's lib and feminism has lowered birth rates for white people and abortion lowers that even further, and so both of those have gots to go. No access to abortion would be more white babies. White women staying home and raising a brood means more white babies. You know, like back in the good old days. This is one way that we can help make America great again. And naturally, non-white women need to have fewer babies. So, reducing economic opportunities for non-whites means that they can't afford to have very large families. Anything that helps people of color get a leg up, like affirmative action, is therefore part of the problem, and that should be eliminated. It's interesting that once you look at things in this light, a lot of seemingly disparate conservative arguments cohere into some kind of a sense. Affirmative action, political correctness, abortion, women's rights, homosexuality, since gay men and women can't reproduce together. All of these become contributing factors in the demographic apocalypse that is looming on the horizon when the non-white people will suddenly explode into a massive angry horde eager for some serious payback. Andrew Brevik, the Norwegian terrorist, talked not only about the evils of other races, but also devoted quite a bit of time in his manifesto to feminists and other things, like homosexuals are icky and don't have birth rates, gender roles get confused, which means fewer babies, and women should stop trying to have jobs and should just go back into the home and raise children. In exchange, he says, men should do things like open doors for ladies and be polite to them. I mean, what a sweet deal for women, huh? Hey, drop your ambitions entirely and become essentially a nanny, maid, and sex object and men will open doors for you, pull out chairs for you to sit on, and compliment your new dress. You know, like in 1953. In fact, almost all the manifestos of these great replacement white supremacist mass shooters beat these same drums. For some, feminism itself has been a long game plot created by Jews or others or women themselves. One prominent neo-Nazi told his male followers that they should forcibly inseminate their girlfriends and wives. And some go even further, calling for a return of legal practices like coverture. This was an English common law doctrine that argued that once a woman marries, she is legally identical to her husband, having no legal existence of her own anymore. Accordingly, the man should give her nothing since he'd really just be giving it to himself. This crept into American law, and as late as 1954, it was still in effect in California until it was finally got rid of. Men could get medical prescriptions for their wives since the little ladies were really just extensions of the men, and in many places, women could not open a bank account without a husband's signature as late as the late 1970s. Husband, keep in mind, not boyfriend, and certainly not girlfriend. So, Yeah, I can kind of see the point here. All this talk of reproduction rates kind of really is about women when you come right down to it. At its core, is all this great replacement hoopla mainly about race, but also maybe a little bit about women? probably both mixed with a sort of gleeful anticipation of impending doom because things are declining this is actually a thing called declinism mixed with the idea that things were way better in the past because they were simpler the growing complexity of the modern world is overwhelming for some who seek refuge in ideologies and conspiracy theories that seem in contrast to what's happening every day to make sense of things simplifying the chaos and weaving a coherent narrative that can be followed I will say that if there's some nefarious, far-ranging plot to replace white people, the puppet masters are not doing a very good job. As a country, France is 85% white or white European. New Zealand is 70.2% white. Australia is 76% white. The UK is 78.4% white. Belgium 79.7. Canada is 80%. Netherlands are 81%. Germany is 86.3%. Norway is 92.9%. Finland 93.7. and Denmark a whopping 98.6% white. The United States, the most diverse in terms of skin tone, is about 61.6% white. These numbers are valid if skin tone is important to you, which it shouldn't be. If it is, then, I don't know, consider moving to Russia, the whitest country in the world, or Iceland, the most ethnically homogenous country in the world, and also white. Bonus. Bonus! Bonus! It might surprise you that the most ethnically diverse countries in the world are in Africa, with Uganda leading the pack, followed by Liberia, Madagascar, both Congos, Cameroon, Chad, Kenya, Nigeria, and the Central African Republic, rounding out the top ten. Yes, these are all darker-skinned people than, say, Norwegians, but they are different ethnicities nonetheless. In fact, most of the world is not white. The largest group is generally categorized as Asian. They come in about 31% of the world total, but that does include several boatloads of Han Chinese, which is the largest ethnic group in the world. Caucasians come in third after Asians and Middle Eastern slash Indian, which is a weird grouping. And this has again been the case for a very long time. And nothing has happened. Yet, white-dominant countries continue to see a rise in concern about the future of the white race. Much is made in the media about some impending date, not today, but soon, in which this country or that one will suddenly become less than 50% white, and even though whites will still be the plurality, which is is the largest segment, there's this irrational fear that the non-whites are going to get themselves a nice heap and plate of vengeance. What people don't seem to realize is all of this is eerily familiar. Similar claims have been around for a long time, way before gay icon turned white wing mouthpiece Raynaud Camus wrote down his musings when he encountered too many Arab looking people for his liking in the villages in the south of France. The only war that's really going on here is a war of ideas about whether the future will look like something new or will look like the past. I know which side of that divide I fall on. Which one do you? Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.